Cradleine Network. I am the law, and this is the eighth episode of Big Meg One. My name is Conrad, alongside my friend Eli. It's the podcast two Americans patrol their way through the Judge Dredd magazine. This episode, we're covering the magazine volume one, issues 10 and 11, cover dates July and August 1991. This episode will imbibe dead fluids, investigate masons, hunt with a raptor, win one for the Gipper, and go on the trail of the corpse of Elvis. And if you read along with us, you'll find the comics we're covering today in Judge Dredd, The Complete Case, Files 15, and the Owl's Baby and Young Death Collections. All right. How you doing, Eli? I'm doing great. Yeah, a lot of stuff going on uh, this week. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we're sort of we're sort of powering through. I think the uh, the first volume of the magazine ends after issue twenty, so we're sort of, we're we're at about the halfway point of volume one here, and so we're getting to the point where a lot where I think where all of our initial sto- like all of our initial stories, I think we finished all of them except for Young Death, which is just about to finish, and even some of the newer stuff is reaching their climaxes. So you know, yeah, a bit. the yeah. I've been in there uh, so long. I have uh, very strong feelings about what's happening in these uh, these narratives. You know, ah, oh, fantastic! I that's that's all you can ask for, for sure. <laughs> but before we get to the big narrative, let's maybe do some one-offs, starting with story one: The Gipper's Big Night. Uh, script about Alan Grant, art about Will Simpson, learning about Tom Frame. So just a one-off dread story here. Outside the walls of Mega City 1, eight mutants, nine if you count the Gipper, prepare to assault the city. Uh, just so you know, Eli, I don't know if you if you if if, if you know this, but um there's a um the uh, the US president Ronald Reagan was nicknamed the Gipper because oh. he played he played a character called like George Gipp or something like that in a famous movie. Okay. And that and it was based on a real person who was this guy who was a uh he played football for uh Notre Dame, the the college. And he died of he died, all right? <laughs> like he was in the hospital and he died and he was real young. He was like 20 he was like 25, so he was like just like had just left the team or was on the team and so when he died it was a real bummer and it's there's a very famous thing of this of this guy uh Newt Rockney who instead of told the team a speech about the about the Gipper dying and, and his last words being go out there and win one for the Gipper. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. That's that's some good Which, good info to have, yeah. Yeah, so that just became a thing that like 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 that line. I don't think I did it exactly. It's one of those Mandela effect lines where the one what they say in the movie isn't quite what people remember. Right. But because of that, because because Reagan, you know, played that character and then went on to be president, that was like a big nickname for him. Oh. Sort of something that kind of echoed oh, through, I guess. Okay, so it wasn't even before he even became president. Oh yeah, this nice. the movie was like in like the fifties or something I like see. that. Wow. It was like I mean, because it was it was Ronald Reagan playing a guy who was in his twenties, and you know, oh, right. he's like, that makes sense. you know, an old guy in the eighties <laughs> or whatever. Right. I'm just trying to say <laughs> that's really cool. Building it backwards, but yeah, so it's just kind of a funny thing, I think. Um, 
But so uh, outside, so eight, eight mutants among them, the Gipper, prepare to assault the city. Audie Murphy goes out first. He draws the judge's attention as the rest scale the wall. At the top, the judges get the drop on those mutants, but the Gipper pulls out a phosphor grenade and covers their escape. Whoa! <laughs> they lose another teammate, Meatball, but then head into the city as Dread and Judge Raspler are in pursuit. The mutants steal a car as the judges follow close, and they give the carjacking victims 30 days for jaywalking for being out in the streets, as you do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Will Simpson, I really like the art here, Eli, I think, um, just, he draws it, he, the, the way he is doing this stuff, it feels very, like, chaotic, I guess, mm-hmm. like, the, the, the panels are rarely straight lines, and everything's sort of smashed on top of each other, I guess. Right. and even the, uh, lights have this, um, it looks like, I, I assume that's, um, uh, like a spray paint, uh, effect, where it's kind of hmm. splattered, yeah. uh, so it just even shows that light and energy are, like, sporadic and, feels like they're coming through something at you uh, yeah so yeah definitely keeps that chaotic uh energy and even some of the painting is like blurred like yeah 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 so. yeah it's like an impressionistic action scene right almost. exactly <laughs> so the mutants head onto the motorway as cars explode behind them and the judges turbo boost into action um they enter a- Bike cannon range just as the mutants reach their goal, the Hen Brune Tower, which is the city's tallest building. And Hen Brune is a character from this long-running Scottish comic strip called The Brune. It, like, started in, like, the 30s and, like, it, it continues to this day, although mostly in the form of, like yearly like uh annual like like hardbound annual comics that they sell yeah. that are just like n- nostalgic for people of uh of a certain age and in in, uh, in scotland i'm thinking oh, yeah, like that's cool. it comes with it comes with with a tin of like butter cookies and stuff um, it's, it's ridiculous i gotta get in on that yeah, well, listen, it's good times. <laughs> but the character, but it, 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 it's about this Scottish family that lives in a tiny apartment, and one of them, like the son of the family, is named Hen Brune. They're, they're all the Brunes, and he's Hen Brune, and um, he's like real tall and lanky. So it makes sense that he'd be the tallest that the tallest building in the city was named That's after funny. him or whatever. I was assuming it was um, the tallest building being like such a long story, like the longest story being the tallest building. But mm. I, I can see that too. Um, no, I think specifically named after Hen or whatever uh, yeah, because it's real sense. tall. That makes sense. And I should say that it's supposed just the story supposed to be about an average Scottish family who would have a nickname or who would have a last name like Brown, but mm. Brune is like Brown with a Scottish accent. Mm. So that's like <laughs> what, what I call it. That. That's funny. The Brunes. And uh, <laughs> uh, it. Sorry to aside, but uh, yeah. do, do the kids ever grow up, or like, do they ever get out of that? It like, seems like it seems like everything's the same. Okay, like They're for the tra- last seven, for the last no, not ninety years now. I They're guess trapped in a perpetual limbo state. I get it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much new Brune content there is <laughs> versus the annuals just reprinting old stuff, mm. but you know, I think at this point they've made their peace right. with. Um, with their ageless existence, no, you know. Perfect. All right, as long as they're all right with it. I mean, like you know, I'm just I'm just guessing. Like <laughs> I gotta, you know, I'm um th- this is not my area of expertise. I must say, right. no, no about Judge Dredd, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
Um, so, but, but the, the mutants arrive at their goal, but the judges are there too. And under bike cannon fire, the mutant car crashes hard. Most of them are killed in the crash or when Judge Raspler gets shot and his bike just sort of keeps going and crashes into them. Entering the building, it's just the narrator as well as Billy Geek and the Gipper. There's a pretty cool moment where the panels get real haywire and are all, are all diagonal and stuff as Billy tries to get the drop on Dredd, but instead Dredd sets his bike along an automatic, so Billy the Geek just goes flying off the side of the building to his death, basically. <laughs> <laughs> At the roof, the narrator, Dennis Claw, sends the Gipper to finish the mission and then goes to attack Dredd. At last, the Gipper sets off a flare from the top of Hen Brun Tower that reads, Mutants are people too! A stirring message as the Gipper poses in front of an American flag, and then both he and Dennis get shot in the face by Dredd. <laughs> And Dread with this mini um, um, America retelling kind of story right. here <laughs> or whatever. He just messages into control. Scratch one mutant incursion. No lasting damage. Mm. Right. Whoa. <laughs> you got to think about it. <laughs> yeah. Really like this one. Uh, definitely, uh, you know, I don't know how they do it, but they, these things are so topical, even like to modern standard with things going on. Uh, yeah, I mean, I really think um, like what what's good about the storytelling in Dread, especially, is that like you can is that it it ends because it's sort of a sci fi story with this stuff. It does feel universal, mm-hmm. no matter what um, what what area you're in or what's going on. Right. I mean, it's hard to tell. You know, we're here, whatever. <laughs> right. Late October 2020. Who knows what's going on when this comes out? Anyway. Right. That's all I can say. That's true. Um, Anyway, um, let's continue on and just speak of the crazy occurrences, Eli. Yeah. Let's talk real fast about story two, Straight Jacket Fits. Uh, script robot Dave Bishop, art robot Robert Langridge, letting robot L- Robert Langridge get that double paycheck. Um, so last time we saw this one start with like a big multi-page opener, but I think this is what we'll be, we'll be seeing for the most part from this thrill, Eli, more sort of like single page, like punchline based things, essentially. Right. Um, so, uh, we get, so a Dr. Stabbins, who's, I guess, a, uh, uh, psychiatrist from Mega City One, who's here to help out East Met or here to help out Britsit with their crazy people, um, is um has a new patient to talk to. He thinks he's some sort of Star Trek S space captain. And the real central joke here is that Stabbins apparently has a tape recorder that he makes notes into, but it keeps getting switched around. So this time it's a haddock. And so, you know, the the space captain just kind of gives name rank and serial number while Stabbins gestures around with the fish the whole time, basically. <laughs> Which is okay, I guess. I don't know. It gets carried off asking where the green women are, which is fair. That's um, <laughs> what we all want to know. Yeah, come on. Uh, um, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, the doctor is actually out of his mind as well. And this is all, you know, uh, to get into his head. He- I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. 
Next up, the, the tape recorder is turned into a shoe, and the patient thinks he's in, or yeah, it's turned into a shoe, and Stabbin's patient thinks he's invisible. Just goes around naked, trying to freak people mm. out. Basically, <laughs> apparently, he was really boring in his life, so everyone started ignoring him, and it drove him mad. He tricks Stabbin's into making a pun. I see what you mean, and <laughs> that's just the end of it. That'll show up. Yeah, but yeah, in this in this third story, which is in uh, issue eleven. Where um, Stabbins has to interview the tallest patient here. It seems like he is sort of being observed by one of these robot doctors behind a desk here, which does seem kind of a foreshadowing that maybe there's more going on here that might be apparent, you know? <laughs> one of these Shutter Island style twists oh, yeah. or whatever. I'm like, oh, you're actually crazy too, buddy. Yeah. One of my favorite twists. Yeah, it's a solid twist. Spoilers, I suppose. All right, maybe. Um, all theory yeah, here. listen. Listen, you know, see these 10-year-old movies. That's what mm. I say. <laughs> that are that are remakes of even older movies. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, this time Stabbin's um, recorder is um, – oh, geez. What is it? I didn't make a note. But uh, – oh, oh, sorry. It's Banana now. And mm-hmm. he talks to Adolf, who is nine feet tall but convinced he's a little person. He will cry if you imply that he is not short. And he ends up crying a lot. Fills up the room with it, with the, with those right. tears, waist deep in tears. Right. The big guy, you know, big tears. It, you know, that's right. Uh, that's such a cartoony thing, though. That's is like a. I mean, this whole thing's very cartoonish right. in comparison to everything else we see in the magazine, right. for sure. It having some uh, actual physical effect. Uh, maybe it's metaphorical. Maybe metaphorically filled the room. Yeah. With tears. Or, that feels right, or, you know. Or got modified tear ducts so that he could actually, you know, cry. Ooh, you know, uh, cybernetic. Uh, larger larger <laughs> tears than usual in order to fill rooms. I, I like that. Yeah, that's I'd that's get a, that body mod. Yeah. That's pretty solid. <laughs> uh, finally, Stabbit's recorder is now a roll of toilet paper or bog roll, as the locals say. And his patient just attacks him because he's actually a living toupee. Animated by its when its former wearer was hit by atomic radiation, and now he just wanders England, living a cursed existence. Stabbins doesn't buy this hokey flashback, though, and the toupee is taken away. Next time, slap happy. I didn't really get the toupee one. Uh, it feels lost on me because then after he didn't buy the you know first explanation, he was like, "What if I was bitten by a radioactive spider?" And he's like, "Yeah, get out of here." Like, I think it's a little bit just making a joke about like comics where you know characters have a specific backstory that they kind of always tell I see. when you talk to about talk about them, you know. So Spider Man oh, yeah. with the radioactive spider or whatever. Yeah. But it is weird that it's a toupee. Like, why would you put a toupee? Why would you put a, a living hair piece in a mental institution? Right. Like, yeah. are is there a community of sane hair pieces somewhere right. in, in Britain? <laughs> right. This guy's an aberration from. Right. Is he trying to cope with being a toupee? Maybe. Maybe you know he became sentient. And he maybe maybe he's not a toupee and he thinks he's a toupee. Maybe he's just an alien. Whoa. And he's like, oh, I'm I'm a toupee. I must. That must be what's going on here. That's certainly fair. I don't think we hear anyone say what exactly his uh, right. diagnosis is. <laughs> anyway, we've <laughs> we've officially now thought more about straight jacket fits than anyone else ever, Eli. And for that, I commend us. <laughs> Let's move on to more terrifying monsters than just living toupees. Yeah. <laughs> With story three, Young Death. 
Script robot John Wagner is Brian Scudder. Art robot Peter Doherty. Lettering robot Steve Potter. We start with a blind Mrs. Gunderson knitting a pretty confusing looking blanket as Judge Death and biographer Brian Scudder argue once more about death's uh, murder-based ideology. Um, and then, but eventually sort of like, you know, Scudder's like, you know, ev- killing everybody doesn't seem like the best way to fix things and death's like it absolutely is, let me tell you. <laughs> eventually, they, though, they uh, agree to disagree and death continues his story. At this point, he's decided that life itself is inherently corrupt, as you do, so he's going to kill everybody. He's a full judge. He's going to destroy the world so he can return it to a perfect state of innocence with everything being dead. Um, Death has managed to convince a few of his fellow judges on this as well, who have become his most trusted lieutenants. We get some pretty excellent murder and mayhem montages here. At least one person is clearly killed for having an untie shoelace. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and one of the judges sentences an entire school to death for noise violations, burning over 1,800 people to their deaths and thus is dubbed Judge Fire. And I mean, they had to be even noisier while they were being burned to death. So I don't know. It seems like causing more of the problem. Yeah, but I, you're right. They probably weren't thinking about that. It's a real uh, no ethical consumption under capitalism kind of moment, right. you know, where it's like – I guess sometimes you got to cause noise to end noise or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, I guess so. I would, Maybe. You can't argue with these judges. I mean, I guess that's, Listen, that's the problem. Yeah. Like, again, it, it definitely seems like interacting with these guys about hypocrisy is just going to get you killed. You know, <laughs> right. like, you got to be careful about it. <laughs> interacting and not interacting. Both of them will yeah. get you killed. Definitely. <laughs> um, so he's called Judge Fire and the other two will, of course, become Judge Fear and Mortis soon enough. Scudder then asks the real question, which is like, hey, Judge Death, like, I know you. And you're telling a story about a dude named Sidney, who's a dude. (laughs) But, like, you're clearly not a dude anymore. You're some sort of, like, like, you know, corpseman. Like a a, a zombie or a lich or something like that, I guess. I got to get out my D&D book to figure out exactly. But you're something. Right. Yeah. And Death's like, ah, oh, fair point, fair point, you're right. Um, <laughs> and he goes to explain what's going on. And he says that he fell in love with two lovely ladies. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all right. Because it seems like apparently where he lived, there was part of the town that was supposed to be haunted or something. I don't know. The part, the fact that there's a haunted part of uh, the town that he lives in seems very out of nowhere, but whatever. Um, right. <laughs> Death goes to investigate and inside these caves find piles of human bones and eventually sort of a, a sanctum where two women have created a temple to death, complete with just a dude being hung upside down, bound in wire, being slowly bled into a giant stew pot as the whole place just surrounded by dead bodies, rats and humans and parts and all this kind of stuff. Pretty gross. And it's love at first sight, of course, between these psychos. And that means things are going to get weird. (laughs) As you do, right. Yeah, come on. Um, So we cut – so at the start of uh, issue issue 12 or issue 11, I should say, um, we see judges staging outside the Sylvia Plath block. Dredd and Anderson are there, though Anderson isn't sensing death in any way. 
Uh, Death continues his tale. He's been bringing new victims to the sisters and things are just getting real creepy. Mm -hmm. Like he kind of says like, yeah, I bring them victims and we do stuff that I probably shouldn't tell you because they're real gross. It is a choir taste. Yeah. Even even for me now. Even for Judge Death, they're a choir taste. (laughs) We were into some crazy stuff back then. Oh, to be young. Yeah, really. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. But eventually, though, the sisters make a good point, which is, hey, Death, how can you end the curse of life if you yourself are alive? Huh? Come on. That's dumb. Right. Hypocritical. Yeah, come on. The only way to be pure is to die yourself and then be resurrected in undeath. And he's like, that's a fair point. I can't argue, you know? So he begins a process of... um. Like taking their various poisons and like special unguits and stuff like that. And eventually he sort of dies completely freed from his mortal coil. We see his spirit rise up as a big black cloud. Like he's all crazy here. And then after that, they anoint a body with dead fluids and he's able to come back in like re-inhabit that and become the Judge Death we all know and love, complete with the full classic uniform and stuff like that. I did. I was always worried about their outfits, but it seemed like it was a custom-made outfit so, by the, the lady. So, I mean, that's... Yeah, it's clearly inspired by the original, like, de- Dead World um, Judge uniform or whatever. Mm, right. But they've definitely also taken a lot of – they've definitely gothed it up by like 500%, right. you know? Just, just stuff lying around. Of, Bones and skulls and – yeah. <laughs> yeah, sewer gratings, things like that. Yeah, it's definitely definitely taking a lot of inspiration from their, from their death temple for sure. <laughs> so the other uh, lieutenant judges ask for the same process and we're off for the races in terms of, uh, you know, being crazy death yeah. gods basically. Right. Yeah. They definitely get to paint the town red. Exactly. Yeah. Ooh. Literally. <laughs> Next time, the final chapter. Going to the end of Young Death, but we're pretty much you know we sort of got to Judge Death here, so presumably we're just going to sort of wrap things up and then see what's going on in the present in next in, in, in next issue and stuff like that. I am glad they're addressing some of the obvious things I also had questions about. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I'm enjoying it. Now, I, the only question is about their, you know, space time travel and um, – um, Yeah. I'm well, I'd say that's that's the big question for sure is how do they go from being crazy zombies in their world to trying to become crazy zombies in Dread's world, you know? Yeah. And um, uh, I'm also curious about the powers that they get. Like, you know, uh, why – what? how did Judge Death get his – just put his hand in you and you die versus that's you know, true people getting like oh i control fire you know i scare you to death unless that's you know modified you know like maybe when they're doing the whole like poisoning you slowly yeah uh, they can maybe mm. put a little extra in if you want some type of particular effect maybe right you could put a request in or something like that right. or but no i think that's a fair point actually we should hopefully they'll yeah we we, we got to explain how they dimension jump and how they get, like, character-specific superpowers next episode. So let's <laughs> right. keep an eye out for those, you know. But hey, speaking of uh, people getting various superpowers, or maybe oh, people coming back from the dead. Ooh. Yes, that's what I want to talk about. Yeah. Let's talk. Let's go to story four, Red Razors. 
script robot Mark Miller, art robot Steve Yole, coloring robot Philip Lynch, lettering robot Annie Parkhouse. Gull Dernard Eli, the body of Elvis has been stolen, and the people of Sov Block 2 are protesting about it. They don't like it. One of these Elvis stealers from last time talks to a distant radio operator. Um, it seems like they're just t- making the plans to transport Elvis back to Mega City 1 where it belongs. And he just – the uh, the accomplice just says, hey, you guys just focus on getting to the border. Then it's smooth sailing. But it's revealed that that guy is in the middle of being tortured by some no-good mutants and is leaving, leading the thieves into a trap. A scarred man in a purple hoodie with uh, strange rough word bubbles claims to be the chief judge of Sov Block 1, draws a long knife, and accuses the radio operator of stepping on pavement cracks and that justice must be served. So he's clearly pretty crazy. I think yeah. we can see that. Yeah, not judge death crazy, but yeah, he's close. Yeah. yeah. No, well, well, I mean, you know, this is more of the sort of your generic general purpose crazy mm. as opposed to crazy with an ideology like Judge right. Death has, you right. know? Yeah. In a building that looks like the Empire State Building with like one of those Russian onion domes on the top. <laughs> razors, ra- uh, razors and his horse Ed go to see the chief judge bullying his secretary, Miss Harkness, as he goes. They, and they didn't seem upset okay. about the horse coming in. Like I, I would have thought that they, you know, there was some type of policy on horses coming up to the, you know, twentieth story of a building. Yeah, it, well, I feel like a talking horse goes where he pleases. You know, I mean, it's a judge too. You I, know, I guess that's true. Yeah, it's got a badge and everything. Oh yeah, okay. That's. I mean, you got to assume right. that the the reason you don't want a horse going into these buildings is because in real life, horses just go where they stand. They don't mm-hmm. really think about that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, right. <laughs> but a talking horse probably has more control. Right. Like it'll go to a bathroom or something. Right, exactly. So do you have? I don't know how they get in those stalls, but maybe that's you know not a problem in the future. Oh, at least the urinals. I mean, you know, I can see that. I mean, that. they might they might just go on the floor in the bathroom. I don't want to give them too much ability, right. but that's better than on the carpet. Right. That's what I'm trying to Absolutely. say. <laughs> no argument. <there. laughs> anyway, um. The chief judge who's lounging in a hot tub with some ladies steps out in brief razors. And it's pretty clear that this guy's just like a kid, like a, te- like a no good teenager. He, I would describe him as an, as an M&M type of like the, sl- of like those early Slim Shady days or something. Yes. But it can't actually be that because this comic came out in 1991. So mm-hmm. like that kind of character mm-hmm. still eight, eight years away right. or something. Yeah. So maybe this guy's more of like a new kid on the block right. or something like that. Or, or inspiration for Eminem. You know, maybe he read Judge Dredd and was like, you know what? I like this kid's style. Maybe I'll try that. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure Judge Dredd would like to think that. Right. But I don't think it's that likely. <laughs> uh, right, right. Or, or the, uh, the people publishing Judge Dredd would like to think that. Right. Uh, <laughs> but so, um, Anyway, it turns out this yeah that that the chief judge is the ruler of mega of of a east of a sob block two I should say he's thirteen and he bought the sob block back when he was nine which I don't really understand but let's just roll with it. <laughs> um, they've confirmed who stole Elvis, so Mega City One extremists. They're surely on their way back to the city with the body, and that means they're gonna have to cross the ruins of sob block one where judges aren't very popular and it's full of mutants. So razors had better find them soon. We cut to John Major's Comedy Club, which is named for the for the then current UK Prime Minister, John Major. And we see the Elvis gang uh, working out their plan. Things seems good. Like, you know, they just got to get out of here. 
And Elvis seems pretty excited for it as his bones just kind of sit in the in the in the bathroom in a golden jumpsuit. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> The crew makes their way down the fire escape, preparing to make their move. When some lights turn on, it's a tank with a bunch of sold of Russian soldier types with kind of a of a pink flower aesthetic. That can't be good. Like the tank's got some flowers on it. Right. People got like pink neckerchiefs or something like that. It's not really explained, but it seems weird. Yeah. And that's how you probably did just another one of the wacky gangs here in uh, in Saw Block Two. Right. Uh, I always take the uh, contrast between you know a tank with flowers on it means that these people are obviously very dangerous they're so dangerous they put flowers on their tank and no one's going to question it because they don't they don't want to die so that's yeah 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 exactly (laughs) yeah they can they can mess with your mind (laughs) with your preconceived notions etc so for the first time in uh in pro in in issue 11 we get a uh, a thing saying what year it is which is 2176 which is 60 years in the future from the current dread timeline that most of these stories take place in and about 20 years from where – or 26, 20, 25 years, I get – wait, let me – hold on. Back. 24 years from where we're recording this. So still pretty far in the future right. to be honest. We'll, we'll live to see it hopefully. I guess so. Yeah, yeah there's, there's debate on that, but yeah. I gotta say, like, I like to, I like to talk about this story to make people angry when they start making a big deal about the chronology of Judge Dredd, <laughs> just to kind of be like, yeah, then in twenty years, like, the sob blocks will become all Americanized and acquire the go- the uh, bones of Elvis somehow. Mm-hmm. And they're like, shut, <laughs> shut up, Connor. <laughs> the story's only vaguely canonical. Like, oh, now we're picketing, choosing here. I see. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. You're um, doing a service. Yeah. Well, listen. You know, I don't. I. I. My stance is not to get too worked up over uh, timelines and things like that. Like it's more. I like a timeline more for things that are kind of fun crossovers and stuff. But once you start doing things for the timeline, or you're once it becomes something that restricts you as opposed to allowing you to do things, then it's that that then it's too much. Yeah. Is what I'm trying to say. Who's got time for all that? Not me. I gotta say that. I don't got times or timelines for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so the chief judge is watching the cartoon Top Cat and getting pretty angry about all these protesters. He looks out the windows and sees they're actually getting pretty serious as we see a huge statue of Elvis um, set up in the middle of like Red Square and the humanity's just a tiny black sea all the way around it, which is pretty cool, actually. Um, meanwhile, Razors has tracked the Elvis gang to the, to the John Major Country Club. Apparently they're unaware that these, uh, that the soft blocks just tap every phone so they can sort of pick you up from there, uh, pretty quickly. He kicks down the door to find the place empty and is then rocked by explosion, by explosions as it seems the Elvis gang has taken out their attackers from, uh, previously one guy just happened to have a bazooka lying around, which is handy. They take off as Razors gets back to Ed, but he's mean in doing so. He's like, get your fat ass out there. And so Ed demands an apology, which slows him down a bit. Um, But um, he does manage to swiftly catch up on the Elvis gang. But before he can stop them, he gets clotheslined. Like actually like a rope strung between two light poles knocks him off Ed. By and, and and the culprits are some fanboys of the Red Death Gang, his former gang. Awkward. 
Yeah. Oh, I should say actually also um in the previous thing while there while there were news reports about Elvis, we also saw that members of um Razor's old gang, the Red Deaths, were demanding his return, like his body's return to the gang, because it's not cool that members of their gang have turned into judges, basically. Makes sense. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it's definitely something to put a pit in that we might talk about later. Um, so anyway, after that, so he yells at them, but they pull out switchblades, and then we switch to the OAP KGB. And I should say that I missed a joke about these last about these guys last time, Eli. Oh no! Because OAP is a reference in England for old age pensioner, ah. which is basically like a shorthand for yeah, just an old person, like someone in America who's like on social security, like a senior citizen mm. or something like that. Makes sense. That's fun. <laughs> so just calling the, the, that mixed with KGB, like ah yes, the old KGB. Right. So you want to insult, you know, senior citizens without them knowing. Use use these use these terms from uh, a little bit. I mean, they'd know about it in England where right. it's an actual thing, exactly. you know. But if you want to get if you want to get cheeky and do like some foreign language insulting, absolutely, right. like you know, these <laughs> Americans will not understand until it's too late, my friend. That's my move. <laughs> <laughs> so these elders are looking for are talking to an arms dealer looking for nukes but get offered some nice pistols instead but listen they really need a nuke so in exchange for also buying 2000 garden gnomes which i think is might be a reference to a classic british comic uh, look out for lefty who also just move a bunch of garden gnomes for some reason um they agree to buy it and thus they get sold a sweet uh trial-sized nuke just like a black ball that's about like a fist, like maybe grapefruit sized or so. Sweet Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> they agree for to the sale, which seems like bad times. Meanwhile, though, Eli, we're, man, we're just mixing these stories together. Um, the Elvis gang has entered Sob Block One, where the smell of burning flesh remains in the air. Gross. Um, they arrive at the rendezvous point, but the truck waiting for them is empty and being attacked by buzzers. Where is that guy? But aw, oh, geez, the truck is full of mutants and they're all over the ground too, grabbing all the Elvis gang members. A shot rings out and they're now under arrest and about to face the court of Judge Nutmeg. Who's that guy with the purple hoodie from the first episode or from the first issue this month? Oh, man. That name Nutmeg makes him sound even more dangerous. You know, like it's definitely a very insane name to have. Right. So I think we're looking forward to some crazy court shenanigans, <laughs> Eli. That's very exciting. <laughs> Next time on Red Razors, Red Moon. They're never gonna get Elvis's body back, man. I don't know. I feel bad for the king. That's all I right. can say. <laughs> you have the sympathy. I I, I understand that. I don't even really like Elvis, but like, you know, I don't know. Leave my bones alone. Yeah, That's all I want yeah, to say. When you're finally, finally dead, you think, you you know, you don't need to worry about the stress anymore. And then next thing you know, people are stealing your bones. Yeah, it's there. You know, listen, Eli, when I'm bones, <laughs> tell them to just just get off my back. All right. <laughs> I'll spread the word. Thanks, buddy. All right. So speaking of spreading the word, let's just talk about some uh, non-stories, covers, and editorials. <laughs> Transitions. Uh, so issue 10, volume one, issue 10, Judge Dredd's Rolling Through a Storm, Night of the Living Dread by Dean Ormston. 
The editorial mentions a U.S. version of the Meg being released in a prestige soft cover format. And I don't know a ton about this, but it does seem pretty cool if anybody can give me some more information. I'd like to check out these early Megs and stuff. Me it's too. good times. Um, these days, um, the magazine's mostly sold – like they sort of sell a version on its own, but they also sell it sort of packaged with 2000 AD, like in kind of a once-a-month kind of pack, I guess. Because 2000 AD itself is weekly, so you often you sort of buy like a, a like a, a five-pack that's got all of the Mega City 1s um, – or all of the uh, – sorry, all of the 2000 ADs um, for that month and the magazine in one sort of package basically, just so you know. <laughs> um, the legal text for this issue and the next one is better dread than dead. Mid-issue there – oh, sorry. Um, yeah, and then mid-issue – there's a front page of the Mega City News because it seems the paper has been bought out by an alien scam cartel and now it's closing down forever. Oh, no. There's also an ad that just sort of talks about how crappy Mega City 1 is. So why not move west to Mega City 2? It'll be nice there for at least a year or two. <laughs> we did uh, – we have met Mega City 2 in our, uh, in our research. It was, yeah. It was like a war, saw- wasn't it? We saw it briefly in um, in the cho- in the uh, final chopper story we saw Ooh. before the magazine. That's where Super Surf Eleven took place. I want to say. Got it. Got it. Um, we haven't seen much of it. I gotta say. Um, also, a very famous Dread story uh, called "The Cursed Earth," which was the first big Dread mega epic, like a big uh, half year long story of him traveling across the desolated cursed earth of the American West was sort of a big trek to, um, to East Meg, to, uh, sorry, to Mega City 2, which is on the West Coast. But, um, we haven't seen very much of it, I must say. Their, their uniforms are slightly different, but that's about it for, for, for what we know. <laughs> um, voila. Yeah. So, um, letters are very complimentary about the Meg. One makes a pretty decent point that Judge Death is a fairly rare origin story in 2000 AD. We don't see those very often, actually. Usually it's just sort of like, yeah, listen, I'm a new character. I'm a badass. Let, let's get going. Right. You know? That's true. Yeah. I'm, actually, now that you mentioned, I'm very curious about Dread. I feel like he should get some backstory, but I guess they couldn't make there- one epic enough, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it definitely takes a little while. I mean, we know the we know the basic details of Dredd's life that he was he's the clone of uh, Judge Fargo, who was one of the first judges, mm. and then um, he was sort of grown in a vat till he was about five, and then um, jo- uh, went to the uh, joined the academy alongside his clone brother uh, Rico Dredd. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit of uh, Star Wars mythos as well from the books. Kind of, yeah. That's a, little, that's a little more niche. <laughs> Although I don't think this part of the Star of the Star Wars mythos would have existed at this point, right? That's funny because at this because because all they, all you've got for Star Wars at this point is just uh, the first three movies. There's no books or anything like that either. I don't think, or maybe if there are books, they're just coming out. Right. Basically, that's awesome. Like that <laughs> um, yeah, just a whole thing. But um, there is eventually a story that's really about the origins of both Dread and the and the sort of gets into the nitty gritty of the Justice Department and all that stuff. But that won't be till like the early 2000s, I want to say. Like that's stuff I haven't read actually because it's sort of in the future for for my progs for going through the progs and stuff like that. So I just sort of haven't checked it out. Very excited to get there, you know. And there's actually a line of of a novels like like uh, prose books 
that are, you know, just like, I don't know, a regular old book, not a comic, that are about the first couple years of um, Dredd's um, time as a judge. Or like, you know, Judge Dredd year one, and then mm-hmm. another one year two, and then a third one year three. That's really cool. Yeah, I, 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 I got to read those as well. But, you know, I'm sort of at this point, a lot of this Dredd content is stuff that I'm reading as I move through the timeline of these podcasts. <laughs> you know what I'm right. saying? So I don't, I don't want to get ahead, you know. I dig that. Um, yeah. Answers also or questions also sorry. The answers to people's letters also plug the Dread Batman team up that's coming later this year and the upcoming Raptar story, which we'll talk about uh later this episode. And one letter disses both Black Widow and Strange Cases, which is okay, I guess. Um <laughs> We're also starting to get some actual ads in the magazine, not just fake futuristic ones. This time there's one for a paintball arena in London and a comic book shop that specializes in American comics in Manchester. Oh, whoa. It's called like Gotham City Comics, you know, and it's like, listen, we know what you want. Right. And it's these American comics. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Because I think even in 91, you couldn't quite get, like, the freshly printed stuff. Like, you know, Marvel and DC had English divisions, but they were basically sort of putting out comics that were very similar to 2000 AD and that they were, like, month, like, like weekly versions of those comics where they'd sort of cut up, like um, – comics from like us comics from maybe from, from a couple of years ago and sort of distribute them that way basically but so so the newest stuff was a little bit rare in england at this point is my understanding but i i could be wrong but i i know it changes at some point but um i don't know I didn't do enough research sorry everyone. <laughs> but anyway because there is a point where like i've seen versions of comics that are from england because they have like the the cover lists pounds or pence instead of mm, right. dollars and cents I mean, I've seen so that as well. you know it's a good alternate way to get a copy of a rare comic or something oh yes the british version very nice um <laughs> issue 11 dean ormson's back on the cover of this issue too his dread is unknowingly stalked by an alien perp on the inside cover, we see we get ads for the Neil Gaiman and Dave McKean books, Violent Cases and Black Orchid, and an ad for the Forbidden Planet comic book shop. Um, there's also some Dread comics by John – We all in the editorial, we learned there's some comics by John Wagner and Simon Bisley appearing in Rock Power magazine. <laughs> but those will soon also be published in the magazine as a Heavy Metal Dread, as another series of Dread stories. Nice. Yeah, the editorial – does some timeline things. It puts both Young Death and Raptar in the year 2113 before the event seen in Judgment on Gotham, which is important because Judge Death's in that. And um, the and um, while Red Razor's in 2176, like, like we talked about, and Armitage and Straight Jacket Fitz are both set in a 2114 for some reason next year. After the Raptar story, there's an ad for a free music album you can get if you open a bank account with a certain bank. It'll give you like a voucher to use to buy like, you know, $13 worth of product, which is enough to buy an album, I guess. Um, um, after Young Death, there's a pretty neat image of Dredd just beating up a bunch of dudes and an ad for just like get pay, buying a subscription to the magazine. The first 50 people to buy a subscription get a get a free graphic novel, I guess. And then there's a pinup of a squatting five o'clock shadow Judge Dredd who's clearly about to put out the hottest mixtape of the summer mm-hmm. with that squat <laughs> and pose and stuff. <laughs> 
so glad you said that. I was thinking the exact same thing. It so is like <laughs> this could like one hundred percent. This feels like it was copied off of an existing like album cover right. or something like that. Yeah, but um, freestyle about that justice. Absolutely, yeah. It's by um, artist Steve Sampson, I believe. Um, that uh, then there's two pages of letter this issue, this this issue, and that's going to be a trend, I think, as years go by. I remember reading magazines where they had like four or even like six pages of letters or something. People want to write into this thing, and they are willing to print them. Um, but um, these letters have a lot of compliments for Red Razors and Armitage, just of showing how different judges in Dredge World look. Um, there's also an editorial, oh, also compliments for the mixing of seriousness and humor in the uh, in the magazine, and then in in responses, the editor teases the start of the comic Soul Sisters for issue thirteen of the Meg, but it actually won't be here until um, volume two in uh, May of nineteen ninety two. So a little bit yet for that weird ass uh, comic strip. <laughs> Many people listening to this episode to this show, Eli, when I talk about Soul Sisters, got a, ch- a chill up their spine. <laughs> That's be very exciting. Um. The Meg ends with an ad for various Terminator-related comic books, including a book called The, the Making of Terminator 2, which and, and, and that movie's about to come out when this comic released, or maybe a month away. Cause, yeah, because issue 12 is cover date August 1st, so it came out in like mid-July, and Terminator 2 came out in England in August 16th, so it's pretty close. People getting stoked for that movie, which is, I don't know, big one for me when I was a kid, for sure. Right. I really appreciate the history you're dropping on me. This, you see how all of it's connected is really fun. Well, part of the fun of, of reading these old comics is just figuring out where they are in space. You know, that's why I really – like sometimes the uh, the scans we have don't have the ads and I'm always really bummed out by that because I re- – you know, it's been really fun over the years just seeing what different things get advertised, especially when it's like TV shows and movies or other things like that because it gives you a real sense of place in terms of where these comics are, you know? For instance, also this comic ends with a big full-page ad for the Jesus Jones single, Right Here, Right Now, a song which I have nostalgia for because I remember when it came out when I was a kid and we actually used it as the opening and closing music in issue four of this podcast. (laughs) Oh, fun. It all goes full circle. You know, I mean, I'm using like these these um the charts that I'm using for to determine what music to use for this show is based on demographics that are right in the wheelhouse for the magazine. So I feel like there's going to be a lot of overlap there. Um, but hey, speaking of young people experiencing stuff, Eli. Yeah. <laughs> speaking of of uh, folks with strong memories of the year 2014. <laughs> Let's go to Story 5, Al's Baby. Script robot John Wagner, art robot Carl Siskera, letting robot Mary Mary Green, who's also credited as Mary uh, um, in uh, issue 12. So last episode, Eli, we had a scare. But both, Al, but in the hospital, both Al and Baby are okay, but definitely at risk. This is an at-risk risk pregnancy, obviously. Right. You know, it's a dude with the, with the baby. Right. Um, in a hospital bed with his fedora on, Al swears revenge against Mutt McCluskey. But Sal cautions him to take it easy. He'll handle Mutt. Right. Yeah, baby this to Yeah. Yeah, listen. Yeah, you focus on just, on just gestating that kid, buddy. Come on. <laughs> Um, this leads to an apparently legendary revenge at Moogie's Country Roadhouse. Oh, geez. 
In a car up on a hill overlooking the roadhouse, Sal coos over Al's bait, Al's belly, as a pair of ladies enter the roadhouse. <laughs> and we learn that the roadhouse itself is the Veruca gang's, like, out-of-town base. It's where they go to lie low when the heat goes up in the middle of this gang war. <laughs> um... Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, the ladies enter and take interest in Mutt McCluskey, who's a real asshole. But listen, you know, some people like that, I guess. Soon the three of them are whining and dying and hanging out together. And one of the ladies slips, slips a powder into Mutt's drink. <laughs> Al looks on impatiently from the hillside as Sal continues work knitting. It seems like a sweater or a, or a blanket or something for, for little Al, which is pretty excellent. In the club, Mutt turns green and holding his stomach runs to the outhouse. He makes it to the commode just in time. But as but, but as he does, Sal lets Al press a button on a remote control. And thus, while Mutt relieves himself, the floor begins to pop and crackle. It's, there's clearly just a, a circle of explosion of explosives drawn around the toilet. And then the floor collapses beneath him and he's dropped into a giant pool. Uh, just 20 years worth of outhouse leavings, basically. Right. It was rough. I thought they were going to kill the guy. They obviously had more cruelty in mind. Fate worse than death. <laughs> right. You know, he, star- he starts out waist deep, but then starts to sink. And we see his face just above the waterline. And then he goes under. Oh, no. <laughs> Later, a a crane comes in and pulls him out, and he's just completely covered in a thick layer of, you know, various bathroom stuff. Bad times. He swears revenge, but instead he's got to go to the hospital because he's suffering from a dozen different known diseases and several unknown ones. (laughs) Meanwhile, of course, in his hospital room, um, Al, Velma, and Little Al send a very nice card saying, get bent. Said it, get well soon. <laughs> Whatever. Right. I think it uh, says, uh, get well, that's crossed off, and says, uh, drop dead. Al, Velma, Excellent. and little, little Al. Well, especially because the explosion that almost made Al miscarry had a car- had a mean card as well. Right. So it's very much circular revenge right. here, you know? I do think he was more clever with his card. They just went... Drop dead. They just wrote it. They didn't, you know. But whatever. I'll, yeah, I'll but credit. well, you know. Yeah, no, I agree. Although I'd say that the lack of artifice also shows a level of contempt that's pretty mm, solid. Yes, for I, for just yelling it for making people feel bad yeah. or whatever. I also want to give them points for uh, using the term "drop." Drop dead because he did fall into this. Bat. Ooh, so the, so the, ooh. I don't know if that was intentional. But. <laughs> if not, that's pretty good. You know, I love these puns, Eli. Very important. <laughs> <laughs> so the gang war rolls on as Al and Sal heist a baby heist a baby uh, supply store or a place to get stuff for babies, not a place where you buy babies. You right, know what I'm talking right. about. Um, Sal's, yeah. Sal's taking snapshots all the way. We learn it's a boy and Al's getting real big now. He's like pretty pregnant at this point. Um, we see a pretty good series of images as first um, some uh, – Veruca hoods are being forced at gunpoint to like paint the nursery in their apartment. And then we just see that those guys are dead and like sticking f- with their feet out of a giant block of concrete yeah. as well. <laughs> Um, the baby's kicking and Al's having late night cravings for ice cream and spaghetti sauce. And his wife, Elma, is like, oh, my God, this guy never stops complaining. <laughs> <laughs> 
They have a pretty cool gangster baby shower, and Sally gets a real nice pick at the waterfront. He has someone else take the picture, and the two of them are best buds. And this is a real heartwarming story about mob violence, Eli. I'm not going to lie to <laughs> <laughs> It's the real good friend stuff going on here. Um, later, though, on the Don's boat, Al's super pregnant, and the Don has decided to not go easy on him. You got to get your priorities straight, Al. You got to be in a hood is more important than having good motherhood. Like, whoa. <laughs> and Dussie gives Al a mission to take a hostage. Ratso Veruca, the head of the Veruca family. Al naps in his apartment as Sal and Velma worry that the mission might be too much for Al. Because listen, like again, size of a boat. Like this guy's pretty pregnant. Right. right? He just can't do it. Got a nap, you know. He's yeah. got to like take care of the baby. Exactly. Yeah, the guy's really not, uh, uh, you know, uh, be taking Al's you know, and his grandson's uh, interest yeah. at heart. Really, really. I mean, he, Yeah. Yeah, both of them are kind of like, oh, like that Don, like yeah. he's like doesn't understand modern parenthood yeah. here or whatever. Yeah, you think in this time they'd have, you know, uh, uh, maternal leave or, you know, something, you know, I guess the mob doesn't do that often. Yeah, very, you know, listen. <laughs> Maybe I can change <laughs> when, some of that. <laughs> yeah, when the, um, when like the Labor Relations Board finally turns their attention to the mob, there's going to be a big reckoning, right. I think, too. Uh, <laughs> I that's think so pretty too. clear. <laughs> Luckily, though, Al isn't the only stone cold hitter in his family. Because Velma, the Don's mu- the the, uh, the the Don's daughter, is pretty fierce, and the safety of her child's on the line, even if she's not the one carrying it. So she grabs Al pistol Al's pistol and prepares to do the job herself. And hell's coming with her. <laughs> That's my my addition, but it feels right. Right. Um. <laughs> Next time on Al's Baby, Snatching Ratso. I gotta say, I'm having a lot of fun with Al's Baby, you know? It's yeah. just this real silly stuff. And just, I, I love Al and Sal's relationship. And I'm really glad that they're getting Velma in on this, actually. Because that had been my... If I had one complaint, it's that I feel like she wasn't really taking a big enough role in this whole story. Right. I absolutely agree. Yeah, and it's uh, oddly relatable somehow. Like, uh... I, I thought I'd have a disconnect because I've never been pregnant, but uh, uh, just going through it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, this is all this makes sense. Like, uh, I feel like I yeah. know these characters. It's fun enough. I think it's a good time for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, hey, let's meet some. Let, let's talk about some other characters here, Eli. Yeah. With who are also part of secretive organizations. <laughs> we go to Story Six Armitage. A script about Dave Stone, art about Sean Phillips, letter about Steve Potter. So a Treasure Steel, who is um, Armitage's um, rookie uh, uh, partner here, takes over narration. She explains that after 10 years of training, she's now in a 12-month probationary period where her boss, Armitage, can fail her at any time. And it's not going great as they invest, start investigating the spooky murder of the head of the Black Museum, Judge Hand. Um, we all, they're also, by the way, also investigating the death of senior judge Anderton. And here's where we learn that actually Britsit has kind of this old school, like British thing where basically, uh, to become a, like, you don't have to train to become a senior judge. You just kind of pay money, pay for a commission and you become one, I guess. 
which is similar to um, in the British military in like the – I don't know when it stopped, but it definitely in like the 17 and 1800s uh, to be like a an officer in the army. You 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 paid money. You, you, you sort of paid in and bought a commission, which also kind of de- determined your rank and stuff like that. So like you'd have a lot of officers that were sort of like rich kids that didn't have anything to do. So their parents bought them a commission or something as opposed to like lower ranking guys, like maybe a lieutenant or sergeants or something who had been there their whole life and had a lot of way more skill and ability than the officers themselves and stuff. Well, that's my understanding from reaching, re- reading the Horatio Hornblower's novels. Eli. I don't <laughs> okay. know. Like, that's it. sort of <laughs> – I could be bringing stuff in there, but that's my – that's what that, that that's what Armitage seems to be implying as well. Yeah. Just that yeah. he is sort of – he's not really interested in Anderton's slaying because a lot of senior judges become judges to avoid people who are out to kill them. So they do have a lot of en- enemies and that could just be that. You know? Right. Yeah, it seems right. I feel like it checks out. Just based on what I've seen so far from these characters. Yeah. At the pathology labs, Treasure meets Mary Turner, who is who's the uh, pathologist and mid-autopsy. She assures Treasure that Armitage is an asshole, but he gets results. <laughs> and hey, like if, if you ma- make it a month or two, like being a trained judge and spending time with Armitage means that you, you'll definitely be able to find another job. <laughs> it's like in security forces and stuff like that, even if not a judge itself. Um Mary hasn't found much from the murder, but she's as she but as she's checking Judge Anderton's body, she's finding these strange tattoos in like hidden spots, like in his armpits and stuff, that are very similar to the shapes that were drawn on Judge Han's body last time. Uh, with, but with Treasure taken care of, looking at the bodies, uh, Armitage goes to see Judge Warner, who's the head of Internal Affairs, who says he's taken Armitage off the case. Armitage smells a rat, though bursts into Warner's office where we see a bunch of uh, upper crust types in judge uniforms. The judge uniforms are sort of built into their upper crust type suits. So it's like, you know, a lot of like worsted, double-breasted suits with like a big shoulder pad and a badge on it right. or something like that. Right. That's the important part. And one's had as a belt buckle as well. Like Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. They're sort of, they've incorporated their judge costumes into their, into being uh, rich guys. And there is another exploded body on the floor of this office. <laughs> Not a good look. Yeah. Armitage closes the door, declares them all suspects, and opens a nearby closet, finding it full of KKK masks, crosses, mm-hmm. candles, ropes, red, scary red books, and those like fancy daggers that right. are like all squiggly. Right. You know what I'm like, talking r- about. Like ritual daggers, like yeah. for maximum ritualness. Listen, I don't want to be involved in a ritual with a dagger with a straight blade, Eli. That's lame. All right. Have some have some self-respect more than anything else. You know? And Armitage just sort of opens this closet full of like occult stuff and is like, You guys got anything to tell me about what's going on here? You know? <laughs> So Armitage is interviewing all these rich dudes. He's backed by uniform Judge Fogredo, who I believe is a – like that name might be a reference to another artist just around the thing, a Duncan Fogredo who sort of does some stuff. And all these rich guys range from old school Matonic, Masonic types talking about their various like weird rituals to um, – to Judge Warner, who weirdly has bright blue hair and says when he's back in charge, he'll he'll get rid of Armitage. And then just kind of some old guys that don't really understand what's going on. <laughs> right. 
But definitely two of the like these two dead uh, judges, like the one that's dead here and Anderton are clearly also members of some kind of Masonic order and have Masonic you know symbols on them and stuff. And it's weird because Hand had these Masonic symbols painted on him. And that's all very, very strange, you know? They return to their office as they talk about it, uh, Armitage and Steele, but they find it being searched by two judges in black suits led by Eugenie Smith of Special Branch. Which is like, I don't know, whatever, the big spies part of the, the Brits at Justice Department or right. something. Yeah, when they're dressed in all black with the sunglasses indoors, that's how you know. That's how you know. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> jinx. Yeah. They they take him off the case as well. He's been taken off the case multiple times now. <laughs> but he still refuses to be threatened and he kind of like does some inside baseball to uh, show that he has friends inside Special Branch. Like he says – the current frequency of the bomb that's programmed into all members of Special Bra- uh, Special Branch's heads, basically. Um, anytime. Time for them to get to work because they are not t- being taken off the case. They're going to work it. Uh, <laughs> they head down to get, again to see Turner in pathology. It seems like she's at lunch. Uh, Treasure sees looks at the body of Judge Hand and notices that the skin from like his feet, like up to like the mid shin or so, or mid-shin or so, has been removed for some reason, which is kind of weird. Maybe a ritual to hide evidence? Who knows? Armitage decides to go back to the Black Library, but as they leave the pathology office, their way is blocked by a giant floating war droid full of guns pointed right at them. And that's bad times. Right, right? yeah. That's not what you want to see when you open a door. No, sir. (laughs) Next time on Armitage, exploding meat. Ooh. I really like um, uh, the art. It seems like it's done in like a, a gouache or a type of paint, but uh, you get to see the under sketches. Like they, they're very mm. loose with it. You get to see like um, how they do uh, shapes for the faces, you know, like walls, books. Like you get to see like the the um, under art that they build off of. I, I find that's a, re- a nice, really nice touch. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a really cool style, too. I also really like just that this whole thing is being t- – I, I think I, – I, I mentioned this last time, but I really like that the whole thing is being told in these sort of double two-page spreads, basically. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, if you kind of look, you can see, like, backgrounds and stuff being ex- – like, there's sort of one big image that's, like, the background, and then the rest of it's, like, little panels right. inside that background yeah. and stuff. And I think that's a really cool look. Yeah. I got to try that in my own stuff. I think it's awesome. I think it really like hmm, sets the really scene. Like, yeah, like, yeah. It really connects a scene together, even if the panels themselves are um, are very dis- disparate. I think. Right. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> but that take. But speaking of a of a of a terrifying murder mysteries, Eli. <laughs> <laughs> Let's finish up with story seven, Raptor. Script about Alan Grant. Art about Dean Ormstrom. Letting about Tom Frame. And uh, Tony Luke is credited with the Raptar design as well. So, okay. Outside the Tom Mohan shopping mall, who I think is some kind of Irish football dude, but I'm not clear. Um, a guy named Cheever Mahoon, who's an on-the-street reporter, interviews a couple putting on bat glider wings to go elope. Their love will not be denied. Even though one of the pair is like a teenage dude and the other one is a nice old lady with an ear horn. Like, Pardon? <laughs> with their bags in hand they put on these hang glider things 
and Bat-Glive to their new lives across town. But as they go, a shadowy figure from above leaps toward them and rips the dude's head off. Oh, no. She screams and crashes, and we cut to dread with the forensics uh, with, with the forensic dude going over the crime scene. He tells um, there's pretty there's something weird about how this guy's head got cut off, so he has them uh, investigate the cause of death and stuff, and then heads off. Um, meanwhile, uh, Cheever Mahoon is still out interviewing, but when he does, he gets attacked by a bunch of no good kids from the Grunt Gang. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and they're wearing like pig masks and stuff, right? And I was trying to figure out. Okay, they're, they're pig masks. I thought they were just pig people, but okay. That, that makes no, I sense. think they're just wearing big rubber like pig masks. I guess. And oink oink on the way out. I was like, oh, is that his condition? Okay, but it's, it's gang stuff. And I think yeah, they're just they're just real. They're just really playing the part, you yeah. know. <laughs> yes, but but they run off oinking at when shadowy eyes appear and start looking at them. The tech is doing the autopsy as Dredd investigates the catwalk over the bat glider attack. And he finds both blood and then eventually a skull with an eye still in it hanging on the side of the catwalks as the tech realizes that it must have been some kind of animal attack. We see the grunt's wall scrawling as the shadowy figure comes behind them, slashes one and catches the other with some thwipping, with some thwipping mm. tentacles. They're making thwip sounds. <laughs> That's how you know you're in trouble when you get the thwip. Yeah. And he starts eating them. And here's really where I want to mention the elephant in the room about this Reptar character, Eli. Which is that this comic's coming out in like summer of 1991 and Marvel had just finished the big first Venom Mm. story arc in Spider-Man in summer of 1990, culminating Mm. in June 1990 in Amazing Spider-Man 333. And I got to say, a year after, this character's got those Spider-Man eyes and that smooth black body with the big toothy maw that makes him look very Venom-ish. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I uh, couldn't help but notice that comparison as well. Um, and like uh, the the final thing is that that thwip from the tentacles mm. that's just, that's a Spider-Man sound effect if ever there was mm. one. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I did want to note uh, that uh, the page before the thwipping, um, mm-hmm. they show the wall scrawlers and then they go into this like um, X-ray vision where you kind of see their bones. So it kind of implies that oh, that's yeah. kind of the vision that that this creature has can see into your skin. Yeah. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Cool. No, this this reptar, it's it's primarily venom, <laughs> but I think, but I'm I'm seeing a fair amount of like the 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 xenomorph from Alien, mm, right. reasonable amount of predator in there too. Like it's right. a mashup, right. yeah. but you know, its primary DNA is is is, is venom. I think. <laughs> right. Yeah, if they could have just done a little bit more to the face, just to get get away from those eyes, I think they could have probably got at, got away from it pretty, pretty yeah, well. Yeah, the eyes are just super spider-man eyes you know so it's sort of it really really tells the tale there anyway so he this this uh raptor is eating these kids next time judge meat and i gotta say eli when i was reading when i read this one and then armitage because armitage is next time in issue 12 is exploding meat and this one was judge meat (laughs) and i went through to see if the other ones were also meat related and they are not and that's a missed opportunity (laughs) i agree they have to meet it up a little bit more come on get a little meat in your life buddy (laughs) <laughs> but with that, oh, we finished uh, issues 10 and 11 of the Judgment Magazine. Oh. Woo! All right. And with that, Eli, I must know, 
what are your top and bottom stories for this here magazine? For these here magazines? Hmm, let's see. Huh. You know, I, knowing that this is coming up every week, you know, you think I like, you know, plan this ahead of time and I just think about it ex- on the spot. I but, mean, I'll tell you, Eli, of all the things I prepare for for this show, the one thing I never prepare for is top and bottom mm-hmm. thrills. I let the spirit take me. Mm. <laughs> let judge take the wheel. I get it. Exactly. <laughs> um, hmm. Uh, dang it. Al's baby is still, you know, growing on me. I'm still liking mm-hmm. them more and more. Um, but I did like, I'm really liking Red Razor, only because it seems to be a more complicated story. There's a lot of, you know, like... There's a lot of moving parts in that one, for sure. And I'm really appreciating that. Um, huh. Yeah. It's, it's odd. Uh, Judge Death, I think it's because it's winding down that I'm, uh, it was like a growing curiosity, but now it's gotten to like, oh, I just have two more questions. If you can answer these two questions, <laughs> we'll be fine. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, I have to, I have to put on bottom, uh, uh, straight jacket, straight jacket fits. Um, only because I'm not sure if they're going to lead to a, you know, a big reveal. But mm-hmm. if uh, I feel like they're most likely to lead to the big reveal, I already guessed. And in that case, I have to take away more points. So uh, we're, <laughs> Take away more points because you can see it coming. Right, see how it exactly. Goes. So best case scenario, it's uh, okay, you know, whatever. Worst case scenario, they're going to do the reveal I already predicted. And then I have to take away more points. So there uh so i'll put them on bottom pretty uh pretty easily um hmm. ah, dang it uh let's see because i am in, also enjoying yeah. the uh murder mystery element on um uh um armitage armitage yes um but then also i'm really loving uh joe's baby uh al's baby what am, what am I, who, am I, who am i talking about who's joe <laughs> Did I just make make Joe up? I mean, jo- I mean Joe Dredd. That's his first name for sure. Okay, all right. Uh, you're you know you're you're in the ballpark okay. for sure. You know, just some uh, of the specifics here. You know, <laughs> ooh, come on, I, just blurt it out. I'll give it to um, uh, Al's baby. Um, nice. Yeah, I'm really enjoying the characters and uh, what's going on there. Um, and I want to give. Um, uh, uh, compliment to red razor as well because i'm really enjoying uh their art style um the the very simplified very dark blacks and then you know colorful pages is i'm i'm really mm-hmm. enjoying that as well as this talking horse that, that's sassy <laughs> extremely yeah, sassy so I, all right so that's that much, I'm, it's a little bit of a cop out but yeah i'll, I'll go with I mean, I'm gonna say it's mostly Al's baby for the record. I don't like. I don't like the. I, I don't like this hedging, Eli. I gotta say, like, <laughs> it's coward's I, way out. The the purpose of this is to make hard choices <laughs> and then cause some of these thrills from 30 years ago to feel bad. That's you know, fine. Listen, if they didn't want to feel bad, they'd be better stories. That's all I can say, Eli. You know. <laughs> um, for me, I'll happily join you in saying uh, straight jacket fits as goes in the bottom. That's fine. Like these, it's okay. Like I like the art, okay, but these jokes are not that funny, and that's just how it goes. Right. Um, 
Then for my top, ooh, Owl's Baby's very tempting. I'm really liking that one. And it just being just this, like, farce of of baby things and violence and stuff like that. Like, that's a fun mashup. And again, like, I think just this uh, doting mother hen, Sal, and his relationship with Al is just so funny. I would love to see a movie that was like this or something <laughs> like that, because I think that would be hilarious. Yeah, exactly. um, yeah, definitely. But I think in the end, I think I'm going to, I'm going to put Armitage at my top. I think yeah. I like the art and I am really like, I'm, I'm trying to pay it. Like, I think when I first read it, I might've just been kind of flipping through, but this time I am really trying to pay attention to this mystery that that's building and stuff like that. I mean, I don't know. Like I, I, it's been a long time since I've read this story and I don't know how it goes. So it might just be for nothing, but I am liking these little hints of this Masonic stuff. And like, it seems very strange that judge hands feet had their, had the skin removed and stuff. Right. It definitely is part of a larger conspiracy. Yeah. Like it seems like there is a mystery that's building here. And so, it's it's tough as a podcaster trying to write recaps because I'm worried that I'll miss some kind of key element as I'm talking about it. But um, I'm interested to see how it's going to go, and it's sort of a story that I want. I'm I'm excited to see develop for sure. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Awesome. I hope everybody enjoyed the show. As always, you can find Big Meg One on iTunes, Stitch, the Google Play Store, Spotify, or our podcast site at BigMegOne.com. Feel free to contact us at BigMegOne at gmail.com, the 2080 forums, or our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages. For all of those, you're looking at Big Meg One, spelled, with, spelled O-N-E, and you'll find us there. <laughs> This show is brought to you by Steve Green, Zane Kip Miller, and your friends at the 2080 Forums. If you'd like to join them and help support the show, we'd appreciate it. Please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Cradaline. It's never a podcast network thing. And there you can support the show and receive a ton of excellent content, including advanced episodes, coverage of modern 2080 in the Meg, and even monthly Q&As with Fox and myself. Then come back next time as we're going to conclude a couple of these thrills, including Young Death, and start some new ones. Exciting times at the precipice as we begin a new year of Big Mac 1 in the calendar ways, and then just more general adventures from Judge Judge Dredd. Get ready! And until then, I'm Conrad, he's Eli, and we are Big Mac 1. Rocket! Rocket!